I'm Wade Roush, and this is Soonish. It's a show about the future, how we think about it, what we can do to shape it, and why our best forecasts and our worst fears are usually wrong. When we think about the future 50 or 100 years from now, we often imagine that it'll look completely different from the present. But the truth is, it won't. I mean, sure, there might be flying cars and mile-high skyscrapers, but we'll still have things like schools and 7-Elevens and sewage treatment plants and libraries and museums. Or will we? On that point about museums, I want to share a statistic that, to me, is a little bit scary. This piece of data comes from the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts. They did a survey finding that between 2002 and 2012, the number of adults who took part in arts activities, like going to an art museum, went down by one-sixth. If museum attendance were to keep going down at that rate, then within 50 years or so, America's art museums would be completely empty. Or at least, they wouldn't have any young people in them. The only demographic group that didn't cut back their arts involvement was people over the age of 55. The data that we have from the NEA and other sources is that museum attendance is gradually uh, declining. And, you know, the demographic for museums is a graying demographic. So the, the long-term trajectory is not good if you don't shift. This is Charlotte Kagan. She's the former CEO of a museum in Southern California called the San Diego History Center. And lately, she's been studying museum design at Stanford University. And I've probably interacted now with well over 100 students, maybe 125 highly innovative, they're totally into technology, and museums are just not, not on their list of things to do. You know, they, it's passe, you know, that old adage of museum as mausoleum, you know, is something that's part of their thinking. Museums are not appealing to them. So what is appealing to this group? It turns out the NEA has looked into this too, and the answer isn't too surprising. All those young people who aren't going to museums anymore are staying home and watching TV and using the internet. Picasso and Monet and Da Vinci are losing out to Instagram and Facebook and Netflix. Now, here at Soonish, I'm interested in the future of everything, including the future of museums. I'm especially interested in how the future is shaped by technology and how our choices about technology can bend the future in one direction or another. When it comes to art museums, technology is clearly part of the problem. I mean, not only are there more digital distractions than ever, but these days you can view practically every important piece of art in the world online without ever leaving your home. That's a crisis for museum curators because they have to get people in the door if they want to stay in business. Why should anyone care if museums stay open? Well, let me offer you a quick argument followed by a hypothesis. Here's the argument. There is no substitute for going to a museum and seeing actual works of art, live and in person. I've felt this way ever since I was 10 years old, and my grandmother took me to the Detroit Institute of Art to see an exhibit of paper cutouts by Matisse. For me, standing in front of those cutouts generated a physical feeling that I'd call visceral or even electrical. I wanted to take that feeling home with me. And I still get that feeling today when I'm standing in front of a Matisse or a Cezanne or a Hopper. It makes me want to understand the art and the artist and the world that inspired them to create these luminous things. 
and I don't think you can get that feeling any other way. If I'm right about that, then it's pretty darn important to find a way to reverse the decline in museum attendance and make sure museums are still thriving in 50 years or 100 years. Now, here's the hypothesis. We know that computers and smartphones and the internet provide distractions that siphon people away from museums. But when they're used creatively, maybe the same technologies can become tools that draw people into museums and keep them more interested and engaged while they're inside. In today's episode, I'm going to take you to three museums in three different cities where people are trying different ways to help museum visitors have deeper experiences around art. Some of those experiments depend on technology, and some of them depend on the art itself. It really is a younger audience that we've engaged through the app. And so I think a lot of um, children are, are using it to learn and explore in a way where they otherwise would be totally tuned out. But as an art historian, it made me want to puke. We open just like a movie. Uh, where the music would play. This is a Picasso, but what is Cubism? For those who hear the voices of the past in those pieces, they can be transported. Finding that sweet spot where you're thoughtfully incorporating technology, that's a real challenge. Our first story today is from the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia. And it starts in the early 1990s, before smartphones and the modern internet even existed. It's about this quirky art collection called the Barnes Foundation. It's not really a, a, a museum, although people think of it as a museum. It started as an art educational institution, and it's quite a remarkable and unique institution in that it has more Renoirs than any museum in the world. Fifty Cezannes, you know, some of the greatest works of Matisse's career. This is Curtis Wong. These days, he's a researcher at Microsoft, but back in 1993, he was a multimedia producer for a company called Continuum, and the Barnes Foundation called him up with a problem. The Renoirs and Cezannes and Matisse's at the Barnes were worth billions of dollars, all told. But for legal reasons, the paintings couldn't be sold off. And at that time, the museum itself was located on a residential street in a suburb of Philadelphia, where only a small number of people were allowed to visit every day. So the foundation couldn't really bring in enough money through ticket sales to keep the place open. They figured they might be able to raise some cash if they sent some of the paintings out on a traveling exhibition. This tour uh, was about to go underway, and they thought it would be really nice to have a way to acquaint people to the works that were in the Barnes Foundation that were going to be in the show. Many of the paintings had really never been photographed in color, so it was sort of a new world for uh, people that were interested in post-impressionist art. And so we were given the opportunity uh, to do an accompanying CD-ROM, because uh, that was kind of a new thing back in 93, uh, to help people understand the nature of what the foundation was, was about. Now, if you're under the age of 35 or so, you may never have seen a CD-ROM. Before the broadband internet, they were the only way to share sound and video across computers. They were plastic discs that looked like CDs, and companies used them to publish multimedia software for education and entertainment. And the challenge the Barnes Foundation gave to Curtis Wong was figuring out a way to use multimedia technology to explain their odd collection and its eccentric creator. His name was Albert C. Barnes, and he'd been born in 1872 and then made his fortune selling patent medicines, including a treatment for gonorrhea. Now, by 1993, there were already lots of CD-ROMs about art on the market, but most of them were just big collections of images, without much in the way of interpretation. 
it was art for people that already knew about art, but how do you bring in a larger audience? Before he joined Continuum, Curtis had been a producer at the Criterion Collection, which put out Laserdisc editions of classic movies and basically invented the idea of the audio commentary track. From his work with movie directors and producers, Curtis had an idea for something that would tie together all the paintings that would appear on the CD-ROM. And that thing was a story. Dateline, Paris, 1914. In recent months, an unknown American with an insatiable appetite for modern art has been painting the town green, the color of money. We opened just like a movie uh, where the music would play and uh, I actually used a guy who had a, uh, a voice. I had him do something like Van Voorhees from the original uh, newsreels. Dr. Albert C. Barnes first came to Paris less than two years ago. He's been on a spending binge ever since. So it was a very sort of compelling opening that would lead you into the story of this amazing place. The Barnes Foundation CD-ROM ultimately came out in 1995 under the title A Passion for Art. And Curtis says it gave him a chance to explore this philosophy he was developing at the time about how to make multimedia software interesting to people. It was all about presenting stories in layers that the user could peel back one at a time. And I think of story as the point of engagement for somebody who really doesn't know that much about a particular topic. And there are a series of stories in A Passion for Art. One is about uh, Dr. Barnes and who is this guy and why did he create this place? And then there are two other tours by art historians that tell you either about a theme or about what the major works are that are in the foundation itself. And then the last story is a deep dive on a work called the Matisse Dance Mural. And it's great because it starts with, you know, what is this place all the way down into the creation of a singular work of art by Matisse. And tying together all of these stories, there was a map. It was a virtual recreation of the museum that let users see which paintings were hanging on which wall. So through this process, you're sort of navigating the space and get, building a mental model of where works are, how big they are, and within each painting, a number of paintings, you could click and hear a story about that painting as well. A passion for art made a big splash in the technology world and the museum world because of the groundbreaking way it presented the art. It got rave reviews from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and NPR. And Curtis says he even started getting fan mail. One mail was from a guy who said, uh, you know, I've lived near Philadelphia and I've lived, uh, I've driven by the Barnes Foundation a number of times, but I never bothered to go in. So he said how much he loved the CD-ROM because it created the motivation to want to see the real work of art. I first met Curtis around the same time because I sent him a similar piece of fan mail after I reviewed the Barnes CD-ROM for a technology magazine. Years later, I had a chance to visit the Barnes Foundation myself. And when I did, I felt like I had been there before, and I was able to go straight to the paintings that I liked best. All of that thanks to one piece of software. And I think that's the goal for any sort of technology that can facilitate understanding, which is, you know, sort of the the information side of the brain, and then when you go see the work itself, then the emotional part of the brain really engages at a more deep level. Curtis's company Continuum was later renamed Corbis, and the company went on to create a bunch of other great CD-ROMs before it switched to its current business model as a provider of stock photos. The CD-ROM basically died out as an art form after the World Wide Web came along. But for my money, 
A Passion for Art stands as one of the most effective digital museum guides ever created. And at least a couple of Curtis's innovations caught hold. Those were the ideas of using digital maps and layered storytelling to keep visitors oriented and engaged. To see how that's playing out today, we're going to jump 2,500 miles to the west. San Francisco. Within its 45 square miles is contained one of the most colorful and romantic cities in the world. The de Young Museum in Golden Gate Park is San Francisco's oldest art museum. In fact, it predates the Barnes Foundation by almost 30 years. But in 1989, the museum's original building was nearly destroyed in the big Loma Prieta earthquake. The building had to be braced up until the museum board could raise enough money to demolish it and build a completely new structure. That new building was finished in 2005. Unfortunately, it came with some problems of its own. Particularly at the de Young Museum, we have a pretty unique building and unique situation. This is Tricia Robson. She's the director of web and digital production at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, which includes both the Legion of Honor and the de Young. And they wanted the building to be a pretty organic space, um, leaving a lot of room for discovery within the building, which is a really exciting concept and lovely. In execution, it can lead to a lot of visitor confusion. If you go to the de Young, you'll notice that there isn't much signage to help with wayfinding, which is exactly the way the architects wanted it. But the art itself is scattered across 100,000 square feet of gallery space on three floors. That means a lot of visitors get lost. So in 2015, the de Young turned to a startup in Berkeley called Guidekick. The company builds smartphone apps that use 3D models to help visitors find their way around museums. The apps are sort of like Curtis Wong's CD-ROM, but they're on your phone. Also like the CD-ROM, the app contains audio essays about selected works of art. Now, most museums these days let you rent audio guides where you can punch in a code and hear descriptions of each painting. But Guidekick's apps are different. You don't have to enter a number to hear about each painting. Instead, the app uses Wi-Fi signals to keep track of your location. And when you approach a certain work, it comes to life automatically and presents you with the relevant content. Mark Patton, the CEO of Guidekick, agreed to meet me at the de Young to give me a live demonstration. At its core, when we launch the app, we find the, uh, the map of the de Young Museum. Um, we can tap on it and it kind of explodes open the different floors like a pop-up book or like a cross-section. And so you can scroll between the different floors um, and select the one you're on. So we just started a tour. Um, and now as you walk around, we can see the kind of notifications popping up as we walk from painting to painting. That kind of creates this experience. Um, so why don't we just, just walk through a little bit. Okay. And so as we explore the galleries, um, the Wi-Fi positioning helps to map our location and orientation. Um, and then beacons that are set up by different paintings will um, kind of come to life. All right, we're walking up to a giant painting of a rainbow. This is one of my favorites. Double rainbow, in fact. Rainy Season in the Tropics by Frederick Edwin Church. And so we just got the notification, and we can listen to the, the artwork. You're looking at Frederick Edwin Church's Rainy Season in the Tropics from 1866, which presents this kind of fantastic composite or stitching together of views that the artist experienced on his travels through the Ecuadorian Andes and also Jamaica. 
Our content always starts with uh, a cursory introduction. That will be the really kind of brief overview of what we're looking at and kind of the need-to-know facts. Um, from there, you'll have the option of kind of continuing on. And, and typically for each painting, we'll have three or four kind of follow-up stories that will dive deeper and so you can stand. And you can engage with something for, you know, a good five, ten minutes or some of them. Padden and Robson say providing these layers of information and letting visitors decide how deep they want to go can make the whole museum feel less intimidating and more fun, especially for one segment of visitors who aren't known for their museum-going habits, namely millennials, teenagers, and school kids. It really is a younger audience that we've engaged through the app. The majority of our audience tends to skew a little bit older, so we are really exciting that this app seemed to engage a part of the population that we weren't previously so directly reaching. For us, some of the coolest stories that we've gotten back directly have been around um, kids just loving it and falling in love with the museum and using it. I, I think um, we had a background in kind of video game technology and, and, and that obviously kind of comes across in some of the 3D work and, and maps. Um, and so when you give a younger kid um, the app, um, they will uh, play with it and they will figure it out and they will learn and they'll run off and go exploring with it. And, and so I think a lot of um, children are, are using it to learn and explore in a way where they otherwise would be totally tuned out and not paying attention. So what started out as a way to keep people from getting lost in the de Young turned into a way to keep them more engaged. Patton says Guidekick is gathering data from the de Young project that will help the company improve its apps for other museums. And Robson says she hopes the app will turn the museum's youngest visitors into lifelong supporters. I think this is a good start for us. Not only do we want to engage a younger audience just to capture sort of a younger base and, and get um, younger people excited about our art earlier, but that becomes our later sort of support network and system. And if we don't capture them early on and keep them engaged, that could have repercussion for the future. These repercussions are exactly what Charlotte Kagan from San Diego was talking about when she described museum visitors as a graying demographic. Kagan says a lot of museums are bringing in technology as part of an effort to make their spaces more participatory. At the Cleveland Museum of Art, for example, there's a giant interactive display that's 40 feet long and shows thumbnail images of every single artifact in the whole museum. You can touch each thumbnail to see a larger version, and you can even load the images that you picked onto an iPad, which you can then take with you into the museum as a customized guide. Kagan says the trick with these kinds of technology projects is to not let the technology get in the way of the art. You run the risk of overdoing it, and you also run the risk of degrading the uh, experience. Museums can become uh, infotainment. They can self-degrade so that they're more like Disneyland. Finding that sweet spot where you're thoughtfully incorporating technology and it enhances the visitor experience and it enhances what the museum is showing, that's a real challenge. From California, we're now going to jump all the way back to the East Coast, to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And I'm going to look at two more cases where people are trying different ways to make sure museum visitors are getting everything they can out of the art. The first example shows that sometimes the art itself can do the job, without any boost from technology. We're in a room in the MFA's new American wing called the Penny and Jeff Vinnick Gallery. It's an ornate 19th century style salon with velvety red wallpaper and old portraits and landscapes stacked up to the ceiling. And it's home to a small but radical experiment where the museum brought in a new painting designed to startle visitors and make them think a little harder about art. To sensitive folks in the galleries of the museum, for those who hear the voices of the past in those pieces, they can be transported and brought 
out of their world into the world that created those pieces. It happens to me all the time, and it's what I'm calling a museum epiphany. This is Warren Prosperi. He's a painter based in Southboro, Massachusetts. And five years ago, he and his wife, the photographer Lucia Prosperi, created a pair of paintings called Museum Epiphany One and Museum Epiphany Two. They showed people wandering through the MFA, seemingly lost in thought as they encountered various sculptures and statues. Malcolm Rogers, who was the director of the MFA at the time, learned about these paintings and decided to commission Warren and Lucia to create a new one for the Vinnick Gallery. The difference was that this new painting would be a painting of the gallery itself. The finished painting has been hanging in that gallery since 2012, and it's like a freeze frame, showing the other art in the gallery and real people looking at that art. When you encounter the painting, you add your own layer, since you're now in a gallery looking at a painting of people in the same gallery looking at the same paintings. M.C. Escher would be proud. This came into the painting after our discussions with Malcolm because we th I thought that would make the piece more enticing for the, for the viewer to, in a sense, un unfold or unlock or deconstruct. Uh, oh, look, there's someone like me, etc. Right? That's what Malcolm was looking for, was some sort of a tactile, direct interaction with the artists, his choices, the gallery, and the other pieces. It's a... It was a clev very clever hanging of a piece which had been conceived, for, you know, at least 50% before the project was even begun for, the, for its location. If you hang out in the Bennett Gallery, it doesn't take you long to realize that Museum Epiphany 3 is the most magnetic piece of art in the whole room. I was there one day when a group of school kids came in and started trying to match items in the painting to the pieces on the walls. Look at the girl with her mother in the museum. Uh, you can see like the same exact statues and frames and oh, it's so cool. And the wallpaper is like the same. Yeah. It's like, actually the same wallpaper. Wow. Yeah. Later in this season, I'm going to do a whole episode about this painting because I think it helps us understand the place that painters and other visual artists occupy in a world that's now dominated by digital images. But what's important for today's show and what I think you can hear in the way these kids talked about the painting is that with a little advanced planning, the art itself can play a key role in keeping visitors engaged. Maybe that should be a no-brainer, but artists and curators haven't traditionally thought this way. Maybe one definition of a good painting is that it puts you a little bit off balance and plays with your expectations about what art is and what meanings it can carry. If you go to the MFA to look for Museum Epiphany 3, there's a chance you'll run into another person who thinks a lot about art interpretation. She's a new friend of mine named Tamar Abishai, and to make art more approachable, she's using a crazy new technology called podcasting. People tend to associate museums with dry academic teaching and curators and educators who take themselves really seriously. You almost expect to hear like pastoral symphony or like Vivaldi in the background. It's a very appropriate thing. You know, we're spending Sunday at the museum. Tamara is the host of an awesome show about art called The Lonely Palette, where she tries to undo this image of museums as temples of elite knowledge. She spent five years developing her own very different interpretive style at the MFA, where she's a spotlight lecturer. Spotlight talks are somebody like me who's basically just waiting in the corner of the gallery, and on the hour, I just start talking. And it's... It's the museum's attempt to have a little bit of museum education just kind of lurking 
behind every corner. Every spotlight talk is is as unique as the person who's delivering it. What makes Tamara's talks unique is that for her, each painting's historical context and how it fits into a larger movement is just as important as the image itself. And so if you understand how this painting and this movement and this gallery fits into that experience, then it puts a little bit more in your tool belt to be able to make your way through the museum. Um, so that's what I like to do. I like to say this is, you know, this is a Picasso, but what is cubism? And that's translated really well into the podcast because then it's like you can tell the story of cubism. This happens to be one artist who we call a genius, but his genius was his ability to tap into the pulse of the moment. So what is the moment? And that's what I think is really interesting. In grad school, Tamar discovered that her deep interest in history didn't fit well with the dominant technique in museum education, which is called Visual Thinking Strategies, or VTS. You are allowed to ask your audience two questions. What's going on in this painting, and what do you see that makes you say that? The goal of that is to validate whatever they pull out of the painting. And there's total value to that. But as an art historian, it made me want to puke because I couldn't, like, they were wrong. You know, and it was like they were pulling things out. And like, I think that the artist must have really had strong feelings towards that because it's red and, you know, and I found that very, very frustrating because I felt like, what am I getting a degree in if everyone is allowed to quote unquote own the painting and have it mean whatever they want? Like, how, how is anybody going to take our discipline seriously? I don't think Tamara is saying that people should listen to her just because she has an art history degree. I think she's saying that interpreting art is about facts as much as feelings. You need to start by having somebody pull out things. And this is actually what I do in my podcast. I ask people to just describe the painting. You know, where does your eye go to first? What do you think the artist wanted you to see? But then I explain why that is the case and why that was important for your eye to go to first because this was what the artist intended. Tamar says the educators who came up with the visual thinking strategies approach were responding to a real problem. Yeah, VTS was really important in terms of making a museum goer feel like they it was their space and that they weren't being shut out of something that was too academic for them to understand. And it feels like art and museum curators, they went so far in the other direction to overcompensate. And I think now they're trying to figure out what the right answer is. Tamar still gives spotlight talks at the MFA, but starting a podcast was her way of using technology to make art feel more alive and maybe to help reboot the way museums talk to visitors. Either you have curators who are trying to tell you everything they know and won't let anything pass them by lest they're accused of not knowing something. And then you have the educators who don't really know that much about art history, actually, but they have their the tools in their toolkit, like VTS. And there isn't a whole lot of a bridge between the two. I basically said, I want to be that bridge. And they were like, eh, there's not really a job for that. <laughs> But you're creating one. That's what you're doing with the podcast. I hope so. I don't know if this is going to move the needle, but it's, it's certainly more fun for me. I want to wrap up by sharing a story Tamara shared with me about a visit to the Louvre in Paris. 
I think this story goes back to my original argument that there's no substitute for going to a museum in person and standing in front of the actual art. That is the real value of going to a museum. There is nothing at a museum now that you can't get online except standing in that aura. Museums can use smartphone apps and touch walls and other gadgets to get visitors into the building and to guide them to their most precious art. But in the end, the technology has to get out of the way before anyone can have a real epiphany. Um, I'm going to be doing an episode eventually on the Mona Lisa because I was in Paris for a wedding over the summer and so I decided to go. I'd actually never been. And I interviewed these people who were standing in line and I got what I expected, which is, what are you here to see? Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa. And I talked to these American guys who I never would have expected to kind of be that excited about seeing the Mona Lisa. But um, one guy was just saying, yeah, you know, I can't wait. I can't wait. And then I had the incredible good fortune of running into him in the gallery that the Mona Lisa was in right after he'd seen it. And I said, well, you know, what do you think? And this guy, he was so moved by it. He said, you know, I just feel like I've had, like now I really know what it feels like to cross something off my bucket list. Like I feel like I finally was able to see it in person. And I think about all of the people who have, you know, made eye contact with her and stood in this gallery over all of those centuries and now I got to also and he actually this is beautiful he said I feel like I made eye contact with history that's amazing yeah it was incredible and you know that is not an experience that you can have anywhere but standing in front of the object I don't know how to get people to feel that way it's very hard to convince somebody that that's the experience that they're going to have, but if they happen to be in there anyway, you know, maybe they'll have it. I don't know what the answer is, and I, I think that, that educators and curators work very hard trying to figure it out, but I think they could do it having a little more fun. Soonish is written and produced by me, Wade Rash. The show's theme is by Graham Gordon Ramsay. Additional music this week by Philip Weigel and Kai Engel. I got valuable production and editorial advice on this episode from Mitch Hanley, John Davidow, and Mark Polovsky. If you've made it with me to the third episode, you're probably a fan of the show. And there are three actions you could take that would help brighten our future and keep the podcast growing. The first is to subscribe to the show or follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, TuneIn, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. The second thing is to rate and review the show at iTunes, which really helps other people find the show. A huge thank you to everyone who has already left a review. And the third thing is to help spread the word about the show via Twitter, Facebook, or old-fashioned word of mouth. We're on Twitter at Soonish Podcast. And I'd love to get your email comments at info at soonishpodcast.org. Thanks this week to my guests Charlotte Kagan, Mark Padden, Trisha Robson, Warren Prosperi, Curtis Wong, and Tamar Abishai. If you love art and museums, you'll also love Tamar's podcast, The Lonely Palette, which is available on iTunes and at Tamar's website at thelonelypalette.com. 
You can learn more about all the people and ideas in this episode at the show's website, soonishpodcast.org, where you'll also find my full interview with Tamar, the music playlist from this episode, and photos of Warren and Lucia Prosperi's painting, Museum Epiphany 3. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back with a new episode soonish. We now have an Abby sitting on uh, the chair <laughs> that has just come in. The interviewer is being accosted by an Abby kitten. Yeah. Yes. I love Abby's too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>